This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2015. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. I'm just really uh, uh, delighted to be in this atmosphere of worship and, and a real proclamation of faith in the singing. And, and I just feel, you know, faith alive in the hearts and the singing that it's Christ in me and that same spirit. And I, I feel at home and uh, it's just great uh, as you travel around and meet the family of God around the world. Uh, when uh, Paul talks about, you know, we don't know the, the breadth and the depth and the height, trying to search out the love of God and you meet some more saints, uh, you know, along the way and folks who are, you know, gripped by the love of Jesus. And you say, well, it's a little wider and a little broader and a little deeper just from these folks gathered here tonight to be among the family of God. And I really uh, appreciate the privilege of coming and sharing here, Pastor David. It's great to also have some time with uh, my friend and colleague, uh, Brian Sylvester, here in Ireland. It's my fourth time here to minister. I've spoken in Ulster Hall. I've spoken in Stormont. I've spoken at the, let me get this right, uh, Balimuskanlan. Muskanlan. Okay. And uh, then they invited, I was here in June, and they invited me back to do a teaching conference on Israel over in uh, Bangor. Uh, On my grandfather's side, uh, I'm Scotch-Irish descent from County Cork, but I am American. uh, But I've lived in Israel for almost 20 years now working with the Christian embassy. And, uh, you know, the pastor said, do you want to know a little about Israel before we really start preaching? I'll give you a a bit of a a current affairs update, uh, as it were, that, uh, you know, you've followed in the news over recent months. We're in another uh, little wave or uptick of terror. Uh, It's not nice. It's not pleasant. It's pretty ugly where you're walking around the city of Jerusalem or anywhere else in in Israel and you're standing at a bus stop out on the street and you're you're wondering if that next car is going to swerve off deliberately and run right through there and and, (laughs) try and kill people or if you're standing in the grocery line or getting on a bus or something, whether someone's going to pull out a knife and start stabbing you or even a meat cleaver or something like this. And with video cameras everywhere these days, a lot of these incidents over the past uh, two months or so, 19 Israelis killed, about 170 wounded, 30 some very seriously. Uh, You also see it on the evening news or catch it on the internet with the videos and, you know, you can get afraid. And it's, uh, in one sense, it's another um, uh, birth pang, shall we say, of the birthing of the coming of Messiah, centered around 
uh, the battle over the restoration of Israel, their physical and their spiritual restoration, and especially the battle over Jerusalem to put this latest wave of terror in context. It's actually a, the third year in a row at this time of year that we've had another one of these spikes in terror with vehicular assaults and knives and, you know, guns or explosives. It's not the suicide bombings. I've lived in Jerusalem long enough, you know, during the, the days of the suicide bombings and such. The last uh, suicide bombing took place about two blocks from my house. About eight people killed on the bus. Uh, I've learned I don't rush there anymore when I hear that ex explosion. I let them clean it up. I'm, I don't have that sort of morbid curiosity. But uh, this latest wave of terror also got a little personal for me and my family in that uh, uh, my son, the bus that he takes to school every day, about a block from his school, we had just gotten off the bus. It was the same bus line, but another one coming back the other way, about a block away, two terrorists were on it. They had some guns. They they shot up when they're out of ammo. They pulled out knives. A couple people killed. Uh, and it was, you know, you, you just, do I put my son on the bus the next morning, you know? They closed down the school, the whole neighborhood in shock, the whole country. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of like the troubles here. You try and and get on with your life, and, and Israel's very re resilient. They get over it. But the context of this latest wave of terror uh, and why it keeps happening this time of year, it seems we're in a little pattern here, that uh, the Muslims uh, start agitating right around the time of the Jewish high holidays, against Israel that they're trying to destroy the mosque up on the Temple Mount. And uh, saying they're, they're, they want to destroy it, they're changing the status quo. And in fact, there is a growing movement in Israel. They're not, they don't want to destroy the mosque or whatever, but there are an increasing number of Jewish people from not just, you know, the religious, but other walks of life say it's not fair. You know, Christians and Jews can visit the Temple Mount, but we can't pray up there. Only Muslims are allowed to pray. And there's around 10 or 15% of the country now that says, look, we should have the right to pray up there. They pray at the Western Wall, but they feel after their long journey coming back to the land, you know, it's, it, there's just something not right that they've, you know, they've come all that way back, and yet they've stopped at the wall and are just, you know, a few steps short of where God intended to have his house of prayer for all nations. And they're being drawn by this desire to pray up there, and it always seems to, to culminate around Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles, when we put on a big Christian celebration there. It's a big biblical holiday. And the reason I you know, was wondering, why does this you know, always seem to peak the last three years at this time? And it, I, I finally found it in the Word of God in, in Chronicles, where... Solomon dedicates the temple. And if you read his, his uh, you know, message to his people and his dedicatory prayer, it is all about 
that place being set aside and sanctified as a place of prayer. God, when we come here and plead for our families, for our nations, for our, uh, you know, our, our, our fields and our cattle and whatever, hear our prayers. God, when we come and, and repent here and pray and hear our prayers, with this is being set aside as a place of prayer to the God of Israel, the God of the Bible. And when in, even the stranger comes... You and I, to this place, hear their prayer. They've heard, they're going to hear of your great name. And when they come, Solomon says, hear their prayer. And Solomon dedicated the temple and said all this at Sukkot, at Tabernacles. So there's something about that that, that is drawing uh, you know, more and more Israelis that this is something, especially at Sukkot, it builds up there that more and more want to visit and try and pray up there. It's risky. And the Palestinians are trying to exploit this and take advantage. They're saying, oh, they're trying to, do, they lie, trying to destroy the Al-Aqsa Mosque. They incite among their people. And so you have 12-year-olds running out with knives, stabbing other little boys, anyone they can find, kids, teenagers, uh, going out and, and with this, you know, thinking they're defending Al the Al-Aqsa Mosque because the Jews are trying to destroy it. And just, you know, even fathers with children, even women, going out to kill Jews because they've been cited by this, this hatred. And at its heart, it's a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual battle. It gets sort of muddled in the media and we, you know, and, and, and even the diplomats and no one, what I'm explaining to you now, how many really heard this in your media? How many know that's the context of what's happening? The enemy knows that there's something destined for that place and the battle over it is going to get more and more intense because that place, I believe, according to the word of God, is the place of Israel's ultimate national repentance and recovery before God and the place where Jesus will take up the throne of David. Hallelujah. And that impacts you and me because he's our king too. And so we'll probably have some more birth pangs. Who knows? But somehow Israel's resilient. They get up from it. They, you know, you had troubles here in Northern Ireland and you, you, you get on with life and, and that nation is dusting itself off. You got to protect yourself and, and moving on towards its destiny in God. And, and, and a lot of this destiny, it's glorious and they don't even know it yet. Amen. Okay, that's a little update from Jerusalem. And we now want to move to the Word of God. <clears throat> if you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to Exodus 32. We'll start with verse 7. Exodus 32, verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, 
Go, get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Look, the Lord says, Moses, the people you brought out, you know, it's not the ones I brought out, the ones you brought out have corrupted themselves. This is like, like Adam saying, uh, you know, the woman you gave me. The Lord's trying to distance himself from them. <laughs> they have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them and I will make of you a great nation. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them? Them from the face of the earth, turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. We'll also turn over to Romans Chapter 11, Romans chapter 11, starting with verse 25, should be very familiar. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will take away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Amen. Amen. Lord, let's, uh, let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the light that it is to our path. We thank you for the nourishment that it is to our souls. Lord, we want our eyes opened, Lord, in, in uh, deeper measure to your wondrous plan for Israel, your wondrous plan for the church, how we are destined for that same glorious end in the Davidic kingdom that Jesus uh, Jesus will promise to David and Jesus will rule over all the earth. Lord, we want to understand in greater measure the mystery surrounding Israel this evening from your word, Lord, to understand greater the mystery of your love and the power of your word and the power of your promises. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Amen. I want to start this evening by uh, very saying very straightforwardly that your view on Israel says a lot about your view of God. How you view Israel, how you explain it, how you approach it, it says much about how you in your own life view God. He identified himself with ancient Israel in such a way that Paul is able to say, look, even though they rejected Jesus and rejected the gospel, God still has a heart for them. And so if I start discussing someone, it doesn't, you know, take long in talking about Israel that I get some idea how, how you view God the Father. What's his nature? Is he faithful? Is he loving? Is he holy? So many in the church down through the church age, their view of Israel it said a lot about their view of God. They said he, he had forgotten Israel or he had rejected them. He had turned on them. He was punishing them, even though he had chosen them and called them. And much of it, when you consider replacement theology, supersessionism, and how their, their view on Israel and, and how it reflected their view on God, what they did is they thought God that he was like us. He must be just like us, that at some point you get so tired of, you know, whatever, the, someone rejecting you and turning your back, whatever, that you just reject them uh, or you, 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 you change your mind. So many churches, established churches, said, God, had, you know, he, he, he said, I can't work with Israel anymore. I changed my mind. I'm going to work through the church. Malachi says, I am the Lord. I change not. Therefore, O sons of Jacob, you are not consumed. If God were able to change his mind, about Israel, he would have consumed them here at the golden calf. That's what it's saying. But God in his nature and character, it's in, he's not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. He didn't choose Israel as, you know, just looking around and whatever. The plan of salvation that he spoke, that he said, I'm going to do it through Abraham, you and your seed to, for, to bless all the families of the earth. It was foreordained before the worlds were made and he knew exactly who was choosing and he's never changed his mind about Israel if you ask me you know my view on Israel it's a little complex 
It's not so simple. You know, you talk to some people, you know, people who love Israel, have a heart and all. It's, well, they're chosen. Well, it's a little more involved in that. And Paul admits this. He says there's something of a mystery to it. Yes, they, they're blinded, but it's in part. There are some who believe. The others, they might not believe in Jesus, but they have a zeal for God. It's a hardness in part. It's not full. And it's not final. It's until. There's, and he sees some redemptive purpose in their rejection of the gospel. It's so that the gospel would go out to the Gentiles. He sees a redemptive purpose in it. But he says even then it's a paradox. Even if they're enemies of the gospel, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. It's not so simple. There's, there's layers here to try and understand. And it reflects the nature and character of God. He's a faithful God. He's a loving God. And so he's always going to be faithful to what he promised Abraham. But he's also a holy God, a just God. And he's not, in that sense, any respecter of persons. Israel, if you sin, there's going to be consequences. So he did correct them over and over again. But he still loves them. And what you find in Scripture, in the story of the golden calf, you have God, you know, he's, he's delivered this people. He didn't, when he chose Israel, he says, I didn't cho choose someone great in number or someone smart or beautiful. He's blessed them, and you got lots of, you know, smart Jews and whatever. But at the time, when he brought them out of Egypt to, to make them a nation that would serve him, they were actually a, a, a people without a will of their own. They were slaves. He chose something weak to show himself strong. And he brings them out by a mighty hand, parts the Red Sea. They're at the, the mountain and, and Abraham, I mean, Moses is lingering up there and the people get impatient and they, they go back to worshiping an idol from Egypt because they had been worshiping there too. They had gotten into it. They knew how to build, you know, one of these idols of Egypt. And God says to Moses, you better get back down there. There's trouble going on. And then he says, Moses, you better get out of the way. I'm going to go consume them. And it's interesting how Moses intercedes for his people. And gets God to turn back. It's not that he changes his mind. He was about to do something and he says, okay, I won't do this. And the first thing he says, he appeals to God based on what the nations would say. What are the Egyptians going to say about you? Not about Israel, but about you. You led them out into the wilderness just to kill them. And they're going to rejoice over it. You know, Egypt got humbled, but what if God had taken them out there and all of a sudden they're wiped? He could have started over with Moses alone, just like he said he was going to do. He did it with Noah and his family. He could have done it and kept every promise he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Moses said, no, think about what the nations are going to say. 
And you know what? It resonates with God. What you and I as Gentiles say about Israel, you're actually talking about the God of Israel. Is he faithful? Is he loving? Does he take a people and use them for redemptive purposes, but then get tired of them and, uh, you know, use them like a dirty dish rag and then throw them in the bin of history, forget about them, change his mind, go with someone? No, he's faithful. He loves them. And he wants to be known as a faithful God, as a holy God. But I tell you, it matters to God what the Gentiles say about Israel because you're actually talking about him. This is in Ezekiel 36. The prophet is saying, you know, God sent Israel into exile as a corrective measure because of their sins. But the longer they stayed out there in exile, the, the more the nation's going to say, well, God's forgotten them. He doesn't care about them anymore. He's not faithful to them. And it says in Ezekiel 6, it says, Israel, wherever you've gone, you've caused the nations to blaspheme my name. It actually says it's blasphemy against the name of God to say he's not faithful to Israel. Serious, And so he says, Israel, I, I, I'm not going to do this because you deserve it or you're good. Or you're, I'm going to do this to defend my name, my, you know, my reputation. I'm going to gather you from all nations one day. I'm going to plant you back in the land and I'm going to then cleanse you and cl give you a clean heart and put a new spirit in you. All these wonderful promises of the physical and then the spiritual restoration of Israel that we are now in the midst of because God got tired of Gentiles like in the, especially in the churches saying God he didn't he doesn't care about them anymore. His second thing, he says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You can, you, you can take the words remember and Abraham in your Bible program. I just encourage you to do that and see how many times it shows up. Uh, the, first of all, the word remember, as far as commands in the Bible, like in the law, it is the most, prevent, uh, most prevalent command. Remember this, remember that. God's always telling them. Moses says, God, you remember Abraham. Remember your promises. You're getting ready to celebrate Christmas here, right? The whole Christmas story, wonderful story. When you get in Luke uh, chapter 1 and the, prophecy, the, the, the um, Magnificata of Mary, when she's told she's going to have the Christ child, she anchors the, her, her reaction and saying, oh, she says, you remembered your covenant with Abraham. This child is coming because you remembered what you promised to Abraham. 
You get to Zacharias uh, just a few verses later and his pr uh, prophetic uh, utterance uh, about th this child. He says, you, you're doing this. You've sent this son to us because you remembered your covenant with Abraham. The coming of Jesus, the incarnation, anchored in the New Testament in God being faithful and remembering what he promised to Abraham. It's powerful with God. It worked. God, remember, you're faithful. You promised. You swore by yourself. It says, you swore by your own self, said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have spoken to you. I'll give to your descendants and inherit it forever. It's quite interesting when you read in Genesis about the calling of Abraham, the journey of Abraham, the promises made to him, all the covenant promises that God swore by oath by himself because he could swear by none greater and it's impossible for him to lie. He's telling him, I'm going to bless you. You're going to be prosperous. Uh, you know, I'm going to multiply. You're going to be father of nations. You're going to, uh, I'm going to give you this land. He's promising all these things. He's just come back from the war uh, uh, against the five kings where he retrieved Lot and all that was stolen. And in um, Genesis 15, you know, God comes down and says, Abraham, I am your shield and your just reward. And I promised you all these things and, and whatever. And he's having this conversation with Abraham. And, and Abraham says, yes, Lord, you promised all these things. There's just one problem. I don't have a son. He was promised all these things. And he says to God, you know, really, that's all I want. I want a son. And God takes him by the hand and leads him outside and says, Abraham, look up at the heavens. See those stars out there? so shall your descendants be. And it says, Abraham, from that, at that moment, he believed God. He believed the promise that God would give him a son. And it says, God accounted it to right, as righteousness to him. So he gets his son. Fine, you know, you have the whole thing with Hagar and Ishmael, but then he gets his uh, uh, son, Isaac. And then he's told to offer him on an altar. And I love the story of the binding of Isaac. I wish we could just preach on that alone. It's an incredible story and the vision that he has of, of, of even, you know, the, uh, the Lord will, as a prophet, he prophesied the Lord will provide himself a sacrifice. And he has that vision, even, you know, open vision of heaven and God speaking to him. And he even sees Jesus on the cross. This is all a picture of the suffering Messiah. And, uh, and Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and was glad. Many things we could say about that. But in this uh, moment, God is so pleased with Abraham's willingness. 
to offer up this one thing that he wanted the most. You know, the land and all these other things. He wanted this son. He was told to offer it. It says, Paul says that in his heart, he had actually already killed him. And that he actually, by faith, he received Isaac back from the dead because he had already determined in his heart he was going to plunge the knife and God stops him. And God was so pleased with the faith of Abraham. He, you know, he opens up the heaven and lets him see it. And he says, Abraham, because you've done this, I already promised, I swore it, but I double swear. I triple swear. I will perform everything that I ever promised you. Hallelujah. And so Moses is able to say, God, remember Abraham. Moses in Deuteronomy, in the early chapters, in many ways, Deuteronomy, it's a recounting of all that's in the law before it in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and, and also Moses sort of recapping before the people all that's happened in the wilderness. And he keeps telling them Deuteronomy chapter 7, Deuteronomy chapter 10, you know, God just, he, he, he chose you for a special treasure and you got to be faithful. I've seen you, you, you turn your back on him, you are stiff necked, but he, 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 he loves you because he loved the fathers, meaning the patriarchs. Why? What Abraham did so pleased God that it was still resonating in God's heart generations later. We know in the Bible that God, by his nature and care, he lashes out at sin and that there's certain sins he visits on the next generation and the next generation. And, you know, some people deal with generational curses. They have special ministries for this. Do you know you can have such a spiritual legacy before God in pleasing him with your faith that impacts that next generation and that next Abraham so pleased God that it is still resonating to this day. Paul says they are still beloved for the sake of the fathers, meaning the patriarchs, all the way back to Abraham. They're still beloved. They rejected him with the golden calf. That election and that love over them survives it. You then see God getting angry over the bad report of the 10 spies. This is in Numbers uh, chapters 13 and 14. He's going to destroy them again. And Abraham has to intercede again. And the first thing he says, his first line of defense, once again, what are the nations going to say? What are they going to say? What you and I think about Israel, it reflects what we think about God. And his first line of defense, God, just think about, you know, you brought the children of Israel out here to kill them in the wilderness. Is that what you want the nation saying? And, he, and then he appealed to his mercy. 
And in Deuteronomy 7 and, and Deuteronomy 10, when he's recounting all this, once again, he says, God did not destroy you because he loved your father. Your fathers pleased him so much that they're beloved. And Paul says that that love and that election over Israel, it not only survived the golden calf, and it not only survived the ten spies, the bad report of the ten spies, it it survives their rejection of Jesus and their rejection of the gospel. It's not easy to understand. There was a redemptive purpose in this, foreordained that they would crucify him. They needed to do it. Where would we be without it? But in their rejection of the gospel, it then goes out to us. But in the end... God's love for them is such, this covenant relationship and love, that he will lift the veil. He will give them clean hearts, new hearts. He will open their eyes to who their promised Messiah is. And they're going to have a cleanness of heart and, a, and, and, and a, uh, come into the same saving knowledge of God that you and I have at the foot of the cross. It's the, his sure promise. He has not cast them off forever. He has not forgotten them. They are still beloved for the sake of the fathers. It's not, it, there's, you know, different layers to this. But just because they rejected the gospel doesn't mean we should reject them. We have to respect God still loves them. And it is his plan that in bringing them back to the land, and then back to himself through Jesus the Messiah. He's going to prove himself to all the nations. In a way, he's a faithful and loving God who does not cast off and does not forget. I don't want to go into eternity until he's finished keeping every promise he made to them. Because there's something about this redemption of Israel and his promises over him. It, it, it's a challenge to his love to win them. It's a, you know, a great challenge that his love would win them back. But it's going to happen. It's going to be a, such a testimony to the faithfulness and the love of God. That's the God I serve. You ask me, you know, my view of God. He's incredible. He's wonderful. He's loving. And he's not like us. He's not a man that he should lie or the son of man or change his mind. You know, he might get angry. He might correct. But he corrects those that he loves. And there's a mystery to this deep love and attachment that God made to that nation and that people. I tell you, even in every day of their exile... And scattering around the world, God was still being faithful to everything he had promised them. He promised them a land. He placed them on it. But then he put conditions in his covenant with Moses 
in order to enjoy this land, you've got to walk in right relationship with me. If you're obedient, you're going to enjoy blessing in the land and, and, and possess more and more of the land I promised you. Enjoy the fruit of it. But if you're disobedient, I, God, I will exile you. I'll scatter you among the nations. And he offered this deal to Israel at Sinai. They agreed to it. And every day of their exile, God was being faithful to them, to his side of the deal. He never broke covenant with them one day. We looked from man's perspective. We said they're cast off. Paul says, wait a minute. Wait a minute. They're being punished for their sin, but God hasn't stopped loving them. And he hasn't stopped using them to bless the world. This is the mystery of Israel. I'll end with just a challenge to you about the ingathering of Israel, which the, Bibles are, the Bible is clear. It's a physical ingathering followed by a spiritual ingathering once back in the land that we have been helping gather the Jewish people for, we've been in existence 35 years. Uh, we've helped more than 117,000 Jews move back to the land because we believe they need to be under the spout where the glory comes out. And it's promised, their redemption is promised back in the land. I'll bring you back to the land, then I'll put a new spirit in you give you a, new, a clean heart. Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And so I want to challenge you to help us with the Aliyah, the return of Jews. Right now, in the past year, we've helped around 800 Jews return from Ukraine. There's an increase in Jews coming back from Ukraine because of the conflict. That conflict that, you know, Russia in, invading in the West or pro-Russian separatists, the support they've gotten for it. Uh, it's also impacted the Russian economy. I was just in Moscow last weekend. I mean, the, the meals were cheap and all. Their, their currency is, is half what it was worth a year ago, the ruble. And, uh, and so there's an increase in Russian Jews coming home right now. And we helped around 800 of them last year. We helped around 800 French Jews come home. And for the first year in modern times, the highest number of Jews returning to the land of Israel came from a Western country, from France, over 7,000. And... They were already expecting that to double this year to 10, 15,000. And with these latest terror attacks, uh, there was a poll done very quickly, uh, up to 80% of French Jews, over half a million there, are considering leaving, most, most going to Israel. And I want to challenge you that God would put this on your heart to help us with the return of the Jews, the physical return of the Jews, knowing that it ends and culminates with a spiritual return to God through Jesus. That's my challenge that I leave you with this evening. And I thank you for your time and attention and for the warm fellowship that we felt here this evening. Thank you very much.
Thank you for listening to this podcast. You can also watch the Sermon of the Month video at youtube.com forward slash Moira Pentecostal or download the sermon video through our iTunes video podcast. For more information, visit us at www.mpc.org.uk. Thank you.